The following audio content is a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website at www.upc.org. The psalmist says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. And if you're like me, you might say, Really? My whole heart? Because there's some stuff in there I don't think you want to see. And we call some of that stuff doubt. Doubts. Among all that you brought this morning, if you're really, to be honest, couldn't I press you to admit that you brought some doubt uh, with you? Doubts, uh, maybe questions like, is Jesus really special? Or are all religions somehow equally valid? Is the Bible really God's infallible word? Did the early church make up or embellish a few things about Jesus? Put that in the New Testament. Does evolution disprove the Bible? Does God answer prayer? Would a loving God ever send a person to hell? Is religious experience nothing more than brain chemistry? Does God care about me? Is God there at all? These are huge questions. But we bring them with us into the presence of God. They're unwelcome intruders. They they come tapping on the window in the dark of night, scratching on the door. And we throw the bolt and we hold them at arm's length and say, No, no, I, I won't entertain that thought. We understand as people who are called to believe in Jesus Christ that we're called to faith. We're called to believe, not to doubt. Again and again, Jesus in his earthly ministry, he'll say, fear not, believe. Believe, he urges us. So do his followers. John 3.16, that best of all known verses. For God so loved the world that... Uh, He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. And and so it seems to all hang on our belief. We'd better not doubt, hadn't we? Well, we know that belief is essential. We fear that doubt is dangerous, and sometimes it can be. Simply because it strikes at the very heart of faith, doubt does. Just recently, a book was published by uh, William Lobdell, who wrote for the Los Angeles Times uh, for many years. This is 2009, Losing My Religion, How I Lost My Faith, Reporting on Religion in America and Found Unexpected Peace. It's a sad kind of a testimony, very honest, very articulate, a well-spoken, well-written man who covered one too many church stories saw the bare underbelly of sexual clergy abuse in Alaska and uh, scandals other places in the body of Christ. And it, it began to erode, eat away at his faith, though he described as an evangelical believer, having converted as an adult, wanting to hold these doubts away. But in the end, he couldn't. He wrote a, a paper at a conference of religious reporters 
and uh, he shared it with them. It's called Spiritual Suicide. It was a trusted group of colleagues, so he's very honest. He says, I'm on a narrow ledge far above the ground. The toes of my bare feet are wrapped over the concrete edge. I'm not even leaning against the building anymore. I don't care anymore. After two years of this, jumping would bring me rest. A plunge wouldn't drop me onto unforgiving pavement far below. It's not that kind of act. Instead, my leap would be into the warm, inviting pool of unbelief. I imagine the water would engulf me like a kind of reverse baptism. It would wash away all the doubts I've had about God. Once I step off this last ledge of faith, the answer to tough questions such as why good people suffer becomes easy. A loving God doesn't let it happen because he doesn't exist. I'm seeing my spiritual life atrophy into skin and bones. God help me. We resist our doubts. And yet here in Psalm 73, we find an invitation of sorts, an invitation to doubt, as unwelcome as that experience may be. As Psalm 73, we read, is attributed to Asaph. These little uh, superscripts that begin uh, several of the Psalms are not inspired. They're added to the text later. They probably represent some kind of an oral tradition. And Asaph was one of King David's three top worship leaders. So, and, and, and we don't know whether this is a reference to Asaph or the guild of Asaph that continued for many generations since. But for purposes of simplicity, let's just assume that this psalm is written by a man named Asaph who, who would have stood before the congregation, the people of God, in, in the midst of an act of worship. So isn't it ironic that someone who's so credentialed, that's so identified within the community of God's people, that he, that this type of a person could get up in front of the congregation of God and say, I have doubts. More than that, not only just this bare admission on the behalf of a worship leader that he doubts, it's also in the scripture. It's right here in the heart of the scriptures. And, and no less authority than the Apostle Paul himself would say in 2 Timothy 3.16 that all scripture is inspired by God. God breathed, and it's profitable. Wow. In what sense could a song of doubt be inspired by God? In what sense could such a song be profitable for people of faith? Well, I think it's that although doubt can be very dangerous, it can also be very productive or constructive in the life of a follower of Jesus Christ. And perhaps, perhaps if God can give us the words through which we can articulate our doubts, he can guide us through those dark nights of the soul. He can lead us by the hand through the journey. And, and we might know that our uh, doubt would be what I would call faithful doubt at the end. Faithful doubt, that oxymoron a kind of a doubt that leaves us stronger at the end than we were at the beginning. I'd like to invite you to open up to Psalm 73. 
And listen as I read the whole psalm for you. You'll find it in the Pew Bible on page 465. This psalm of Asaph, Psalm 73. Truly, God is good to the upright, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant. I saw the prosperity of the wicked, for they have no pain. Their bodies are sound and sleek. They're not in trouble as others are. They're not plagued like other people. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes swell out with fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against heaven and their tongues range over the earth. Therefore, the people turn and praise them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Such are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I have been plagued and am punished every morning. If I had said, I will talk on in this way, I would have been untrue to the circle of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I perceived their end. But truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin how they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. They are like a dream when one awakes. On awaking, you despise their phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was stupid and ignorant. I was like a brute beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me with honor. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire other than you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Indeed, those who are far from you will perish. You put an end to those who are false to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge to tell of all your works. This psalm, it seems to me, suggests, even invites us into doubt. 
and I think invites us to discover that faithful doubt can deepen our faith. Faithful doubt. Well, exactly what is faithful doubt? And how can it deepen our faith? What I want to do is I want to describe the doubt with which this man, Asaph, wrestled just briefly and then take five implications from his journey that can inform our doubts and help us to ensure that our doubts are not destructive but constructive. First, Asaph. Notice this, that he begins with an affirmation. It's uh, like a creedal statement. It's uh, perhaps something that you would be memorizing in a Sunday school class, you know, a little catechetical refrain. God is good to the upright. And you'll notice there's a footnote there, and I think probably it should say God is good to, the, to Israel. That's what the Hebrew actually says. God is good to Israel. That's the creed. And we notice that at the end, he returns to that creed. It's virtually a reiteration of the same statement in verse 28. But he comes to it in a slightly different way at the end. In between those two statements, those two affirmations of God's goodness, is this journey of doubt and faith rediscovered. The first first 14 verses of this text are a deconstruction of that affirmation. You know, he takes it apart on the basis of his experience. He measures it. He weighs it. He challenges it. So it goes like this. He, he says in verse 4, you know, I'm, I'm looking around. God, you, you, you promised Israel that you would make us a unique nation, that you would bless us uniquely among all the nations of the earth. And so here we are, ready for your blessing. But when we look over the walls of the camp, what we see are your enemies are getting blessed more than we are. The, the quote unquote wicked, as we've been taught to, to, uh, to know them, are prospering. Yeah, you know, their bodies are, are sleek and sound. You know, they, um, they fit into the bathing suits. They, they go to the beach and they don't get burned. You know, they eat crispy creams and there they are just the way they were before. It's not right. We're God's people. Are you good? I mean, if you're good to people who are bad and not good to people who are good, are you good? This is the challenge to his faith. He goes on to say, not only do they seem to get rich quick, they also raise their fists against heaven itself. They get away with cursing God. And it seems to this lifestyle, this violent and oppressive lifestyle as it works its way out for these who hoard resources and live fast and loose, seems to be respected by society. They, they earn the respect of everyone around. God, your, your world is just upside down. And he comes to verse 13, he says, and, and me, maybe it's all been for nothing that I have tried to live your ways. Maybe it's all been about emptiness, vanity. Because all day long, I have been plagued and am punished every morning. So you see the challenge to this creed that God is good. He, he, he breaks it down. He takes it apart. But then in verse 15, there's the beginning of a transition. And he begins to reconstruct his faith, having already gone through this reflection. And he gets to a reaffirmation of God's goodness in verse 28 
but very differently. I want to read to you briefly from uh, uh, Walter Brueggemann, who is a great uh, Old Testament theologian. And, and Brueggemann has a kind of a paradigm that I think is helpful as you read this, the Psalms. He, he says you could generally class the Psalms into three groups, generally. Um, Psalms of orientation is the first group. And, and those are Psalms that celebrate God and life because it works the way it's supposed to work. And Psalm 1, for example, is a psalm of orientation. The wicked get what they deserve. They got coming and the good people bear fruit forever. And Life is just the way it's supposed to be because there is a God. The second group uh, class of psalms are those psalms Brueggemann calls psalms of disorientation. That's where the whole thing seems almost upside down. Uh, when, when all the rules of faith and life seem to be broken and we cry out to God, uh, 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 with dismay, what is going on here? The third class uh, are psalms of reorientation. They're psalms that take us from disorientation back to orientation with a more profound understanding of who God is and what life is all about. The interesting thing about Psalm 73 is that it seems to capture all three of these movements. We see, for example, in verse 1, um, orientation. God is good to the upright. God is good to Israel. That's the way it should be. But then the remaining 13 verses, that first section, uh, no, it, it, God doesn't seem to be good in my experience. That's disorientation. And then there's this process in the final half of the psalm of reorientation. That's the process of faithful doubt at work. Brueggemann says this, the speaker is saying, come, I will show you how I learned to make this faith affirmation, verse 1, in an adult world of hurt, envy, and inequity. <clears throat> Psalm 73 is an assault on any naive faith. It arrives torturously at a second knowing naivete. You catch that? It's the same affirmation, but I'm a different person. And I'm able now to affirm that God is good in the midst of troubling life circumstances because I have journeyed through doubt and reconstructed faith. So let's look at this process, how this gentleman Asaph goes through it, and five implications for our own uh, faith. How is it that we can get through our doubt and not be damaged, but be strengthened? Uh, the first implication is this. Accept your doubt. Accept your doubt. Because doubt is a part of growth. We have to question something before we can embrace its answer. If we just hold on to our fourth grade catechism and the simple affirmations that we learned at that time when we were who we were, those are all true affirmations, but if, we, if our faith were based just upon our fourth grade experience of those affirmations, when we get more mature and when we encounter the bumps and bruises of life, that brittle structure will blow apart. No, our faith to be mature requires interaction with our doubt. And so we see a, a repetition in this psalm of a phrase, but I... But I, it's not always translated that. We see it in verse 2, but as for me, that's but I. Verse 13, the word all, but I in vain. 
uh, verse 23, the nevertheless I, but I am continually with you. And then finally, verse 28, but for me is but I. So what the psalmist is doing is he's changing in the process of this journey. He's saying in relation to these questions and experiences and observations, I am growing. But I have a new sense of my relationship to God and this affirmation that he is truly good. 9-11 was described by many commentators as a failure of imagination. We were just not able to conceive our vulnerability. We've heard the same thing about this mortgage-backed security crisis. Failure of imagination. What else are we missing in life because we fail to imagine what's really real and out there? Think of Copernicus. Well, the mathematical equations of the ancients which uh, predicted the movement of the heavenly bodies seem very adequate, except for a very small margin of error. But for Copernicus, it was that one little margin of error, that shred of doubt that opened for him and for us the discovery of what the universe is really like. Doubt brings us to a new place. It helps us to grow. I want to recommend a book. You think this was Bookmobile Sunday here, but uh, <clears throat> another book. This one I, I would really recommend. You can get this from our learning center or upstairs at our book table there. The Reason for God, Belief in an Age of Skepticism by Timothy Keller, Presbyterian pastor in uh, New York City. And Keller says, you know, um, a, a man or a woman without faith would be like a human body without antibodies. Very, very vulnerable. Faith is a part of, a doubt is a, without doubt, I'm sorry, body without doubt is like a, a body without antibody, bodies. So the first implication is we need to accept our doubt. The second implication is we need to express our doubt. And here I think the psalm just speaks for itself in an articulation of doubt. But sometimes when we express our doubt, we realize uh, it's not as scary as we thought it was. When we expose that uh, to the bright light of day, when we reduce it to writing, we have a better opportunity to doubt our own doubts. They seem punier than we thought uh, when they just sort of bounced around. So uh, writing them out in a journal or sharing them uh, with a friend, interacting with somebody. <clears throat> in many ways, Psalm 73 is like a mini Job. It's like Job for dummies, you know, for me, because you can actually read it in a sitting. And, and, you know, the story of Job is a story where the wisdom tradition is challenged, this idea that good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. And Job says, why are bad things happening to me? I'm a good person. Psalm 73 is very similar. It's just why are good things happening to bad people, right? And we're crying out and articulating this doubt to God just as Job was doing. And Job has these counselors, these so-called friends, you know, who come along and say, Job, Job. Keep it to yourself, will you? You know, we all have feelings like this. Just leave them alone. Uh, don't, you know, you're going to offend God if you, if you raise your voice too high on this stuff. But notice to whom it is that God reveals himself by the end of that story. It's not to the counselors who suppress their doubts, but it's to Job who gives them air. So first, accept your doubt. Second, express your doubt. By the way, I don't know if any of you have come across in 2007... Uh, this is my last book I'm holding up for you. <clears throat> Maybe I'll find another one in there somewhere. <laughs> Mother Teresa 
had left behind, she tried to destroy many of her writings, but had left behind a little cache of letters and journal writing. And what people didn't know until these were just recently published is that she wrestled for virtually her whole ministry, years, with excruciating doubt. I mean, let me just, to catch a flavor of this, let me just read. She's writing, uh, Now, Father, uh, since 49 or 50, this terrible sense of loss, this untold darkness, this loneliness, this, the continual longing for God, which gives me the pain deep down in my heart, darkness is such that I really do not see, neither with my mind nor with my reason. The place of God in my soul is blank. There is no God in me. When the pain of longing is so great, I just long and long for God. And then it is that I feel he does not want me. He is not there. God does not want me. Sometimes I just hear my own heart cry out, my God, and nothing else comes. The torture and pain I can't explain. Wow, you know that's the great woman of faith, Mother Teresa, doubting. And, but notice she's able to express those doubts. She articulates them to a friend and to her uh, private diary. And one commentator says, imagine what would have happened if Mother Teresa had not articulated those doubts. Perhaps she would have succumbed to despair. What a loss that would have been. So express your doubt. Finally, uh, uh, sorry, thirdly, join a circle of faith. We notice in verse 15 that the turning point comes when the psalmist Asaph begins to hear his uh, charges or complaints through the ears of the community of faith. He says, if I talk on this way, I would have been untrue to the circle of your children. So I wonder how this sounds to people uh, who believe in God and who have faith. Oftentimes, when we struggle with our doubts, we take them to the wrong audience. We interact with people who, if we're honest and frank, we would say, you know, I really don't respect their faith. I mean, ask yourself, are you interacting with people around these deep issues uh, who have a kind of a, a faith that is tempered by life, that is solid, and whom you respect. Sometimes uh, he, uh, faith, um, when we don't have it, can be shared, a shared thing. I think of these uh, four uh, friends of the paralytic in Mark chapter 2 who lower their friend down into the presence of Jesus. And Jesus doesn't see his faith, the text says, he sees their faith. It's like they have faith for him. And notice the great doubter, doubting Thomas, who says, unless I can see with my own eyes and put my hands on the Lord's risen body, I will not believe. But notice something. He stays within the circle of the children of God. He stays with those disciples. And it's only because he does that he's present when Jesus next appears. I mean, had Thomas said, you know what, you guys are all smoking something and gone on his own way, he would not have had the opportunity to have been present when Jesus came. And said to him, Thomas, now, see with your eyes and put your hand in my side. Accept your doubt, express your doubt, join a circle of faith. For hold your faith with your doubt. Hold faith together at the same time with doubt. We see in verse 17, this process that begins in the circle of children uh, continues. And there's a kind of a synthesis going on. We don't see in this text anywhere that God answers the questions of the doubter. And yet what we see is that as he enters into the sanctuary, there's a kind of a reorientation that goes on because it's in the sanctuary that we remember. We remember the core truths of the good news 
The great truths of the, of the good news of God, his, his grace in worship comes alive to us. And we can hold on to those things at, at the same time as we're able to hold on to these questions uh, that we have. And whereas at the beginning he feels his foot slipping, now he feels his doubts uh, slipping away. It's as though they were a dream and now in the sanctuary he's come to a reality, waking up to a, a kind of a morning. We can be like that man who comes to Jesus when Jesus says, this thing requires faith. And he says, I believe, but help my unbelief. See how he holds those two things together at the same time, faith and doubt. And then finally, journey with Jesus. Journey with him through your doubts. In his book, uh, his article, The Obstinacy of Belief, C.S. Lewis makes an interesting point. He says the scientist who doubts does so differently in her laboratory than in her home. In the laboratory, she's got little justification to believe anything that isn't warranted by her experiments, the readings on the test tubes. But when she comes home and she has questions about her husband's love, or faithfulness. She'd be morally reprobate if she starts to put him through a series of tests and experiments. Because relationships are different, uh, relationships with people are different than relationships to facts. And so Lewis says, we know the truth about one who loves us in the context of that relationship. And that same thing is happening here when this Asaph wakes up in verse 23, he says, you know, I'm continually with you. And you Hold my right hand. You guide me. See, he had measured himself over against they, but now he turns to you and addresses himself to the Lord and finds that in the Lord's grace he has been held all the while. If you tell me, George, I, I don't have much faith, I would tell you, well, think about a person who steps out on some ice. If the ice is a quarter inch thick, but he claims to have a lot of faith. I got news for you. Our friend is going through. If the ice is four feet thick, but he claims to have only the smallest amount of faith, that ice will hold. The point is, it's, it's, it's not the quantity of our faith that matters. It's the object. It's what our faith is in. That's why Jesus will say, if you only have the faith the size of a mustard seed, the smallest of all seeds, that'll be enough. To move mountains, not because you move them, but because I move them. He holds our right hand. Well, these are five stages or aspects of faithful doubt. Accept your doubt, express your doubt, join a circle of faith, hold your faith with your doubt, and journey with Jesus through them. We're fickle people. We lose faith at the drop of a hat. It only took one week for the people of Jerusalem to move from crying, Hosanna, to the king who comes to rescue, to crying, crucify him. And Jesus hangs on the cross that Friday before Easter Sunday. And as he does, you know, there is a man on either side of him, two thieves. And one of them says to Jesus, if you were the Messiah, then come off the cross and save yourself. And me too, while you're at it. A lot of doubt. 
a lot of challenge. But I'm not sure the other man knows much more about Jesus either. He says to his fellow thief, you and I deserve what we're getting here. But this man, he doesn't deserve it. He's an innocent man. Jesus, when you come in your kingdom, will you come for me? And Jesus says, I tell you, this day you will be with me in paradise. And I don't know how it works if there's someone at the pearly gates, you know, when you show up there. But if someone had asked this man, what do you believe about Jesus? I mean, what do you know about him? I'm not sure he's going to say a whole heck of a lot. I think that man stands there humbly with his hands folded and say, all I know is that the man on the middle cross said I'd be here today. And so Jesus fulfills the promise that we are saved not by our faith, but by his grace. It's his hand that holds us. This is the will of him who sent me, Jesus says in John 6, that I should lose nothing of all that the Father has given me, but raise it up on the last day. This is indeed the will of my Father, that all who see the Son and believe in him may have eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. Let's pray. Father, we take you at your word that though our minds swirl with confusion sometimes, you hold our right hand and that we are in your care and that as surely as Jesus Christ rose from the dead, so we will as well. And as you call us to faith so that we can know the joy and the hope of that reality, we also call out to you with whatever questions each of us brings here today. Lord Jesus, help us in our unbelief. All University Presbyterian Church online audio is available on both CD and cassette. If you would like to support the mission of UPC by ordering copies of sermons or classes, please visit www.upc.org forward slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.